Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. Alright, so this is the first deep dive episode that I'm doing for the books that I read for the Storygraph Reading Around the World Challenge. The book that we are going to be talking about today is My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, which I read for the Italy prompt. Since I am talking about a book that is near and dear to someone who occasionally comes on the podcast, I have asked that person to come back today as a special guest. Welcome back, mouse! Ciao! Now, I know that you're really excited to do this episode because it's one of your favorite books, am I right? Yes, of all time! Yes, and I know that this book also came at a pivotal time in your life because you had, you had just started studying Italian, and so this book kind of inspired you, right? That's definitely true. Even bigger influence than the movie Luca. Yes. Watching Luca was an experience because you watched it once in English and then you immediately watched it again in Italian. That was interesting. How did you not get bored? Well, it's a great movie and the language learning helped. I I guess that makes sense. I don't know. I feel like I would have been bored. Anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed Luca and I'm glad you enjoyed My Brilliant Friend. And I I was very excited to finally get around to reading this book because you have been on my case to read it ever since you read it. (laughs) And I'm really glad I did. So let's get into our discussion. Before we do that, I am going to issue a content warning. In this episode, we will be discussing violence, misogyny, domestic abuse, domestic violence, and sexual assault against a child. So it's not like we are going to be getting graphic about any of those things necessarily, but if you are not up for discussions or allusions or references to any of those topics, then this episode is probably not going to be for you. And I also need to issue my spoiler alert, my spoiler warning. This is a deep dive episode, which means that we are going to be talking about the book in depth. So, spoilers abound. Spoiler alert, spoiler warning, you have been warned. Also, I am going to apologize in advance for my attempts to pronounce Italian names. I'm hoping that Mouse here will help correct me, but otherwise I'm kind of on my own. So, apologies in advance. Alright, with all of that out of the way, let us get into our discussion of My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. So, My Brilliant Friend, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this book, and if you are unfamiliar with this book, you should stop this episode right now and go read it. It's a, it's a really good book. But 
In case you are unfamiliar with this book, it's about two friends named Elena and Lila. They live in what the blurb describes as, quote, a poor but vibrant neighborhood on the outskirts of Naples. Now, I have a question for literary critic James Wood because on our copy of My Brilliant Friend, right on the cover, they have a quote from James Wood and that quote says that this book is, and I quote, a large, captivating, amiably peopled Bildungsroman. Now, this is definitely a Bildungsroman. I'm not going to deny that. It follows Elena and Lila from their childhood to their teenage years. But here is my question. I need to ask, in what world can this book be considered amiably peopled? Because there are very few characters in this book that I would describe as likable and even fewer characters I would describe as amiable. So that is my question right off the bat. I mean, one, why did James Wood say that? Did he actually read the book? And two, why did they put it on the cover? Because I feel like it's very misleading advertising. What do you think, Mouse? I agree. It is very, very misleading. Yes. Please, please do not go into this book looking for amiable people because you're not going to find them. Anyway, so that is the premise of the book. It's about two girls who grow up in a poor society in Naples in the 1950s. What's also interesting about this book beyond its premise is its structure. So we start in the present day at the very beginning of the book with Leela disappearing. And at that point in time, Elena and Leela are, I would say like, how old are they at the, at the very beginning? Are they like in their 50s or 60s? Because that's the impression I'm getting. I think so. Okay, so at the very beginning of the book, Elena and Leela are probably in their 60s, but Leela disappears and nobody has any idea where she's gone. Then Elena decides to write the story of their childhood and young adulthood. And so we skip back to the past. And in the past, we have these very short chapters that skip around a lot in time in a very masterful way, which is to say these chapters only tell you a little bit at a time. So if you want to know what's actually going on, you just have to keep reading. It's very clever and it honestly kind of reminds me of the way that a lot of thrillers are structured just in terms of like prioritizing readability and just keeping that pace going really quick. All right, so that is the premise and structure of the book. So those are the two things that I think will initially draw people into the story because it's just, it's very well done. But what is this story actually about? Now, I know that a lot of people will say that this story is about Elena and Leela and their friendship. And while I do think that that's true, hence the title, My Brilliant Friend, I think that I would actually argue that the vast majority of the story, like the point of the story, is to talk about the society 
that the characters are living in. What do you think, Mouse? Do you think that's a fair assessment or no? I think that this book is a lot like a lot of literary fiction and there are multiple ways to read it. That's true. And maybe I'm only viewing it this way because to me, that's the most interesting thing. Like to me, what's interesting is the way in which the author examines the society through the lens of the characters and their lives. I agree. When I was rereading this book, that's what struck me more. But when I first read this book, I had the very shallow, oh, it's about Leela and Elena. Yeah, definitely. And I think that this is one of those books that becomes richer with every reread because put a pin in that actually, because we will get to it in a bit. But this is definitely one of those books that you understand it the first time. It's not hard to understand, but you get a better understanding of the book and its world and what it's trying to say the more you reread and revisit and think about it. Okay, but to me, the society that the characters are living in is so interesting. And to me, it is just the most interesting thing about the book. So I do want to talk about it for a bit. So to understand the story and why the characters act the way they do from the perspective of someone who isn't living, living in that society, you have to understand the world that they're living in. And this book conveys that society in such an immersive and evocative way because it's never very in your face about it. There aren't like long paragraphs that adjust you to the world that you're living in. It's very direct. It's very much about how the characters are experiencing things. And so a lot of times you you think you're reading about like the characters and their emotions, but what you're actually reading about is the society that they're living in and the ways in which these characters have been shaped by that society. And that society is, first off, it's very poor. The neighborhood that they're living in is incredibly poverty-stricken. And while this is a common theme in literary fiction, I do also think that it's a very specific kind of poverty that they're living in, in this specific time and place. It's not just like they're poor, it's more so very specific about poverty and what it means. For example, education. Education and reading, reading books in particular are a very important aspect of that poverty because the thing is being educated is, well, rare and, you know, wanting to read books and reading a lot of books is even more rare. Hence why when you go to the, um, well, it's, it's supposed to be like a library, but I would say it's much more of like a makeshift library. When you go to that library, you can only check out one book a week, which to me, when I go to the library, I routinely check out like 10, 20 books. So that's unfathomable to me. But to these characters, getting to read even one book is such a privilege because there just aren't that many of them. But education in general is a very uphill battle in this book. It's very difficult to get educated because they put a lot of pressure on their students in this educational system. It's not like, for example, in the U.S. in the present day, I think that there's a lot of focus on just moving students through the grades, right? Like no child left behind. 
But the education system in this book is leave behind anyone who isn't fully on board with being educated. Everything is a competition. Everything is about who studies the most, who studies the hardest, who knows the material best. And if you aren't studying hard enough, then the teachers have no use for you because then you become just another person who's going to be trapped in this neighborhood. And as a matter of fact, by the time you get to high school, which very few people from this neighborhood will ever attend, you actually have to leave the neighborhood. You have to physically go to Naples. It's a really good encapsulation of how education is something that you have to strive for and fight for. And in particular, what I found so interesting is there's a lot of emphasis on when characters are speaking dialect versus when they're speaking Italian, because dialect is presented as, well, uneducated, something that is particular to the people in this neighborhood. And it's a reflection of like, being casual and of belonging. Whereas if you're speaking Italian, Italian is something that you have to actually study, right? Because it involves like proper grammar and syntax and things like that. And so when you're speaking Italian, you're often seen as like stuck up because you're actually making an effort. You have to think about what you're saying. And so for example, Elena and Lila are educated and so they often weaponize their use of Italian to kind of show right that they are a step above everyone in the neighborhood and so in the context whether characters are speaking dialect or Italian becomes very important both in the story and also in their relationships with the people around them but of course I'm saying that and Mouse is looking at me with like a side eye like hmm I don't know about that one and um I guess I should defer to Mouse here because I I don't <laughs> I don't know that much about Italian oh no I do agree with you I was just thinking about the opposite weaponization like how people who expect Italian react when people can't speak Italian for instance there's this scene in the book where Elena's mother is trying to talk to I think the teacher or one of Elena's teachers and she speaks ungrammatical Italian, and Elena feels very ashamed. And although we don't really have that kind of distinction in the United States, I do think that definitely there is something similar when it comes to immigrants and whether or not you have the ability to speak English and to speak English well. Like, for example, in the United States, people will often look down on you if you can't speak English, right? And if you have a lot of difficulty with it. And definitely, I think that children of immigrant parents in particular will really, like, relate to the way that Elena feels so ashamed in that moment because I think a lot of um, sorry, children of immigrant parents will understand kind of that humiliation when your parent isn't able to speak English very well and you're like 
well, I can do it, you know, why, why can't you? And they don't realize, especially when they're children, like how much of a struggle it is to acquire a second language, especially when you don't really have the resources to learn a second language well. And this, I feel, becomes even more charged when, for example, your immigrant parent is like Asian or some other ethnicity that isn't white. And in particular, there's this very specific kind of shame that you feel as an immigrant child around speaking like your parents' native language and having to communicate with them in that way. <laughs> so even though it's not directly related to like dialect versus Italian, I do feel that this is maybe not a universal struggle, but a struggle that I think that people these days can still relate to. But beyond just, you know, education and language and that kind of thing, there are also more classic, I would say, hallmarks of poverty that are present in this story as well. A lot of people in this neighborhood work in manual labor jobs, so shoemaking, carpentry, construction, things like that. And being rich in this time period often means things that we would consider more common these days, like owning a car. Owning a car means that you are up there in the world, which I think is a really good representation of not just like different standards of poverty, but just like different societies in general. For example, I read this story somewhere about how when John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath first came out, people in other countries weren't really struck by the family's poverty, which is what the story is supposed to be about. They were struck by the fact that this family who was so poor had a car. <laughs> and they're like, wow, I, I wish I was that affluent that I, that I could have a car, not realizing that actually in the US, like having a car is pretty much a necessity and not so much like a hallmark that you're, you're doing great. You're up there in the world, you know? And so it's always interesting to keep these cultural and societal differences in mind when you're looking at different standards of poverty. And I mean, the thing is, for example, like in this story, if you're living in this society, you don't really need to have a car. Like, they call it the neighborhood, and that's what it is. Everything that you need is pretty much within walking distance. A car truly is something ornamental. I think that another really interesting aspect of the economic differences that you see in this neighborhood are who are the haves and who are the have-nots. So the have-nots are very clearly, as I discussed, people who work manual labor jobs. And I think that that's true in pretty much every society. If you're working a manual labor job, then you are probably not very well off, which I have always found to be really unfair because I think manual labor jobs are like the hardest, just in terms, not only the wear and tear on your body, but just like, it's a lot of work, you know? Like, I feel like those jobs should be valued more by society because who honestly wants to do manual labor jobs? Anyway, but in this society, as in pretty much everyone, uh, manual labor jobs are not valued very highly. And the rich people in this neighborhood are the Karachis, who own the grocery store, and the Solaras, who own the bar pastry shop. By the way, the bar pastry shop is such an interesting idea because you don't often see that particular combination of businesses I don't think in the US. Oh, I think that you're thinking of a bar as in like a bar where they serve alcohol. 
But a bar in Italy is where they serve coffee. Oh, it's a cafe. Okay. All right. But okay, the thing is, this actually confuses me. I get why the Karachis are rich because everyone needs to buy groceries like <laughs> everyone everyone needs food but why are the Solaras so rich because like I don't think that in this neighborhood like a cafe is like a vital resource do you have any ideas about like why they're so rich because I mean I don't really see people like going to the cafe in the story and like hanging out I agree. Even though I think like Gino in one scene buys Elena a pastry, I don't think it's all that common. But also, don't they eat ice cream sometimes? So maybe it's not all that common to have like an espresso or a pastry. I saw they only had ice cream when they went into the city in Naples. But I guess my point is maybe they do like, you know, spend money on food because they also eat like pizza and like other things. I guess. I don't know. I just personally, I find it confusing because I don't really get the vibe that people are really patronizing the Solara's shop, but they must be because they are one of the richest people around. So (laughs) Um, whether or not we see it, I guess I guess they are very, very successful. Who knows? They, They might be like a specialty gourmet pastry shop and like people in Naples like come buy their pastries. I don't know. But part of the reason that this neighborhood and I think Italy in general in this period really is struggling is because you have to remember that the 50s were the tail end of a lot of momentous and catastrophic, catastrophic, catastrophic events in Italian history. I mean, World War II had just ended a couple of years before. And also, you know, during World War II, Italy was a fascist state run by Mussolini. And the destruction of that fascist state wreaked a lot of havoc on the lives of ordinary Italian citizens. And so this is not just a struggle for Elena and Lila and the other characters who live in this neighborhood. It's not just a struggle to break out of the cycle of poverty, but it's also a struggle to break out of old ways of thinking and behaving so that they can enter this modern age that is being ushered in in other places around Europe and around the world. And personally, I found this quote that I'm going to read now to be a really good um, encapsulation of just how much political forces are important in shaping this society just as much as everything else that we're going to be talking about. So the context for this quote is that so... Elena and Lila have an acquaintance friend, you know, I don't know, I don't really want to call him like a friend, although they would definitely call him a friend, but like all of their friendships with like the male characters in the story are so fraught that it's difficult for me to describe it as friendship, but they would describe him as a friend. So they have a friend named Pasquale, so he is very much like caught up in like political stuff and so he introduces Leela to these ideas of like World War II, fascism, monarchists, and so on. And she, as she tends to do with new ideas, becomes very hooked on like thinking this through. And so that is the context. 
Oh, and also, in case you haven't read the book, this may be a little confusing, so I'll just clarify it here. Elena is the one who narrates this book, and she does so in first person. Okay, here's the quote. I'll try to summarize it using the language of today like this. There are no gestures, words, or sighs that do not contain the sum of all the crimes that human beings have committed and commit. Naturally, she, Leela, said it another way. But what matters is that she was gripped by a frenzy of absolute disclosure. She pointed to people, things, streets, and said, that man fought in the war and killed. That one bludgeoned and administered castor oil. That one turned in a lot of people. That one starved his own mother. In that house, they tortured and killed. On those stones, they marched and gave the fascist salute. On this corner, they inflicted beatings. These people's money comes from the hunger of others. This car was bought by selling bread, adulterated with marble dust and rotten meat on the black market. That butcher shop had its origins in stolen copper and vandalized freight trains. Behind that bar is the Camorra smuggling, loan sharking. Soon, she became dissatisfied with Pasquale. It was as if he had set in motion a mechanism in her head, and now her job was to put order into a chaotic mass of impressions. Increasingly intent, increasingly obsessed, probably overcome herself by an urgent need to find a solid vision. Without cracks, she complicated his meager information with some book she got from the library. So she gave concrete motives, ordinary faces, to the air of abstract apprehension that as children we had breathed in a neighborhood. Fascism, Nazism, the war, the allies, the monarchy, the republic. She turned them into streets, houses, faces. John Akil in the black market, Alfredo Peluso the communist, the Camorrist grandfather of the Solaras, the father, Silvio, a worse fascist than Marcello and Michelle, and her father, Fernando the shoemaker and my father, all, all in her eyes, stained to the marrow by shadowy crimes, all hardened criminals or acquiescent accomplices, all bought for practically nothing. She and Pasquale enclosed me in a terrible world that left no escape. So, of course, Leela is kind of exaggerating a bit here, but I do still think that this is very representative of the weight that the past still carries in this society. This quote also reminded me, aren't the Soleras somehow involved with loan sharks? I don't remember if, they're, if they themselves are loan sharks or if they're just involved with them. Maybe. I, I don't really know. <laughs> I think that it might be their crimes are continuing to the present day. And that's why... It wouldn't surprise me. Because, like, okay, I'm going to reiterate this, but I don't think a cafe alone is making them that much money. <laughs> I am all for this idea that the Solaras are actually, like... Oh, wait, what if they're part of the mafia? There we go. That's my conspiracy theory. The Solaras are part of the mafia. <laughs> yes, I think, like, really listening to this quote, I think that the crimes against people, in some cases, are continuing to the present day, and that's why a lot of people in this neighborhood are kind of discriminated against. For instance, Don Aguilar. That makes sense, yeah, because poverty and crime do often go hand in hand, and that's why people are so, like, suspicious of and tend to 
be biased against poor people, which is really unfair. Because the thing is, the reason people often turn to crime is because of poverty in the first place. But I think in this book, it's the opposite. The people who are rich are rich because of their crimes. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a really good representation of the way that these kinds of neighborhoods do tend to work. Like, people are so discriminatory against the people who struggle the most, whereas, you know what I mean? Like, they are the ones who are often victims of people like the Solaras. But I do want to commend this book for being so brave and, like, actually putting the political stuff in there because a lot of the time these types of books will talk about, like, social inequity and, like, social commentary and things like that without actually acknowledging that those things often do have their root in the political forces that have shaped society. So I, I want to commend um, Elena Ferrante for being brave about this because I do feel like it does take bravery. Like, would, would I do the same? Like, I can't really say. Like, I, I feel like I would leave it much more vague as an author and other authors do too. Like, it's, I'm, I'm not alone in this, right? But she actually, like, has the bravery of, like, saying, hey, like, these forces don't exist in a vacuum. Everything has a reason for being the way it is, and guess who has the power to shape society? Politics and politicians, and those things do matter. But I guess that's one of the benefits of being an anonymous author. <laughs> I didn't know this, but I think you were the one who pointed out to me, right, Mouse? Like, Elena Ferrante is an anonymous author. Although you were saying something about people trying to uncover her identity? According to Wikipedia. Yeah, I, I find that so mean. Like, if someone wants to be anonymous, let them be anonymous. Yes, I'm talking about me. I want to be anonymous, too. <laughs> okay, so I at this point, um, so we've talked about the premise, the structure, the society. To me, that's the most interesting part of the book. But now, I do want to ask Mouse here a question, a couple of questions. Because Mouse has actually... Well, like, at least partially read some of this book in Italian. Okay, first off, which version is a more enjoyable experience? Putting aside, like, the difficulty in reading the Italian. Like, which one, which language did you enjoy reading this book in more? Well, so this is kind of a classic Luca case for me. So immediately after I finished reading the entire series in English, I tried to read it in Italian. Um, it didn't work so well. Um, unlike Luca. But I also tried reading it later on when I had studied some more Italian. And I would say that I think the English translation is a very, very, very good translation. But things just kind of click more when I'm reading the Italian. I mean, as it would be expected, because this is a story that is so deeply rooted in Italian culture and Italian history and the author's lived Italian experiences that I can't, I can't really imagine it would be any other way. I agree, but this book also isn't in Neapolitan. It is in Italian, so even though this it is a different, like, culture, I guess, like, it is part of Italian culture. It's also not really, I feel like it is kind of a foreign culture talking about it anyway. So it doesn't make all that much difference in some sense, whether it's Italian or English. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about it that way. But yeah, no, that's really interesting. 
Are there any books that are written in Neapolitan? Do you know? I'm not sure, but dialects in Italy really are their own languages, so I suppose it wouldn't be surprising. Okay, and do you have any, like, highlights of how your Italian reading experience differed from your English reading experience? Well, I would say that it's mostly, like, little things. There are some things that are universal to all Italian versus English translations, and there are things that I would say are more specific to Elena Ferrante being, like, a really, 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 really good writer. (laughs) (laughs) Some things that are, like, more universal is, like, word order is much more flexible in Italian. It's very standard to put things like before and after where they wouldn't be before and after in English. I think this is like common in a lot of other languages. English, especially modern day English, English is very fixed. You have subject, verb, object. Whereas like for instance, consider this sentence. Meno successo ebbi nel cortile. So it means I had less success in the courtyard, I guess. But it says less success I had in the courtyard. So it just feels different when you're reading it just because you're allowed to play around with word order more. I imagine that also like helps out with like humor when there's more flexibility in the language and I feel like that would definitely get lost in translation. Although humor in general does so. (laughs) Also just in general a lot of like rhythm doesn't get translated. For instance, um, this is just a sentence fragment, but infine mormoro senza nessun nesso. Like, the nessun nesso sounds, like, really different. Like, it, in English, it would be something like unrelatedly or something like that, but it just feels very different. But, like, other things where meaning doesn't translate very well, I would say one of the sentences... So this is the English. This, I thought, contentedly distinguishes me from Carmela and all the others. I get excited with her here at the very moment when she's talking with me. Well, so this is like very nitpicky, but Carmela and all the others in the Italian actually says from Carmela and the others, but it's a female plural, so it would mean like all the other girls or all the other women, but it just doesn't translate because you can't say all the other girls because what if that's not what the author meant? Yeah, no, that is really, that's, no, that's really interesting because it's so difficult as a translator to not to really translate per se. I mean, even computers can translate these days. But what's difficult is to convey the reading experience that you would have in the other language. So we should take a moment to commend the translator. What's her name? Anne Goldstein. Okay, good job, Anne Goldstein. You you knocked this one out of the park. <laughs> and it's actually really interesting because I don't see their name on like the outside of the book. I feel really bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, it's on the it's on the cover page, at least, on the inside. <laughs> I mean, tra- translators have it hard. Anyone who has dabbled in translation, as I have, knows that it's, it's a work that involves putting more of yourself into it than I think most people would expect. Because in translating, you have to make something your own. Like, it's a process of creation just as much as it is anything else. You are recreating it in another language with different conventions, as you mentioned, different grammar, different everything. Even, I think, the societal context bleeds in. That's why different translations made in different periods of history, even if it's like a decade apart, are gonna be so different because 
what people understand or how that how you convey things in different points in time are just going to be so different, you know? And I think that even like, you know, this gets a little like inception-y, but like I think it's worthwhile to study translations in and of themselves, you know, like different translations do different things. They're essentially different works, you know what I mean? And so I think that they make a really, a really interesting kind of perspective into that society. Like if you're translating for the United States, like I think this translation is done in the 90s, right? So this is a reflection in a way of 90s society in America, just as as much as it is a reflection of 50s society in Naples. <laughs> okay, sorry, the, not the 90s. <laughs> this book came out in 2012. I'm sorry, I, uh, I boo-booed there. I don't know why I was thinking 90s. Maybe I was thinking of something else. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm the one that mixed you up because we were talking earlier about most other books by Elena Ferrand. That's why, yeah. You've read all of them, right? No, I actually haven't. I've only read like three other books. Oh, really? How? Okay. But this is your favorite, right? Well, The Lying Life of Adults is really, really good too. Which is her, I think, most recent books. Okay. You should read that too. Yeah. No, it is recent because I saw it in a bookstore, I want to say like a year ago. Okay, so let's move on. Let's talk about Leela and Elena's friendship, which is the emotional core of the book and the thing that is supposed to draw you in. Although to me, I, I mean, okay, so like to me, it's still going to be like the society and stuff, but Leela and Elena are very interesting characters in their own right and their friendship, as the title suggests, is very interesting in terms of like what they bring out in each other, the sides of each other that they bring out over the course of the book. So the origin of their friendship is, I think, pretty representative of the dynamic that they develop even as adults or like young adults, because at the end of the book, they're only like 15. So, okay. So the, the origin of their friendship is that they are six years old, they're playing in the courtyard, in the same courtyard, but they're not playing together. They each play with their own doll. And then one day they trade dolls and Leela throws Elena's doll into, wait, into the basement, right, of an apartment building? Yeah, she throws the doll into the basement of an apartment building, which is like, okay. So then Elena throws Leela's doll into the basement as well. Like, well, if you were going to do that to me, I'm going to do that to you. And they never find the dolls again, which is very sad because they were like really attached to their dolls. Like to me, that's actually one of the saddest parts of the book. They never got their dolls back. Yes, unfortunately, they got used as literary devices. <laughs> yes. Ah, poor dolls. They deserved better. And then I would say that their friendship develops after that because you know um i would say that their friendship really develops when they reach school age and they start going to elementary school together essentially elena becomes obsessed with leela and as far as this book goes that obsession never dies because of who leela is and because of who elena is and so when you say that this is a story about friendship, I mean, yes, but the thing that's so interesting about their friendship is that at the core, 
I would say I don't really think either of them knows who the other is. Does that make sense? Like, they are very much people who are friends because of the circumstances of their society and their situation. And what fascinates Elena about Leela is that she never really knows how Leela is going to act or react in any given situation. She always sees something new and different in everything that Elena, sorry, Leela does. And Leela, on the other hand, I don't really get the impression that she knows Elena all that well. I think that for Leela, it's much more of the case that Elena provides stability because Leela is a very unstable person with a very unstable home situation. And I think that Elena gives her that stability in terms of like Elena pretty much moves on a straightforward path throughout her life, at least in this book. Because this is the first book in a four book series. But in this book, Elena is moving on a pretty straightforward path. She goes from elementary school to middle school to high school. She kind of has a path set out for her because of her family situation and being like smart and, you know, studying a lot. And I think that Leela is very jealous of that and that she sees in Elena the person that she wishes she could be. What, what do you think, Mouse? Because I know you've thought about this book a lot more than I have. So how would you classify their friendship? You know, like I, I think that I would classify it as like, like an aspirational friendship almost, you know, seeking out what they don't have and wish they could have and wish they could be in the other person. It's not really a friendship in terms of like, they're deeply attached to one another because of who they are. All right, I, I understand your point. When I first read this book, I saw it as Elena really wants to be like Leela in a lot of ways. I just find it hard, though, to attach a reason why Leela wants to be with Elena, but I think you're right that she does want that stability. And also, I think that she's telling the truth when she says she wants a brilliant friend. Yeah. Oh, didn't you have something about how, um, like, they're, like, Leela's attachment to the community or something like that, right? Oh, yeah, but that doesn't really have to do with their friendship. No, I think it does, because Leela wishes she could be that person who could leave, like Elena, mm -hmm. and, you know, aspire to something more. But, like, one of the reasons she fundamentally can't is because of her attachment to the neighborhood. Yeah, remember that scene? So, so Leela convinces Elena to go to the sea with her, but after a certain point, she just can't go on, like, physically, even though it's presented as kind of a double thing, right? She doesn't want to ruin Elena's life like she was planning to do, but also she just can't leave the region. Yeah, and I think that's significant metaphorically because Elena does actually go to the beach later in the book. She spends a vacation at the beach. And I think that that is representative of one of so what's interesting okay so so in their in their position to society right like elena is someone who wants to leave the neighborhood leela is someone who wants to disrupt the neighborhood disruption is one of her core personality traits from the very beginning of the book like for example when they're little uh leela is like throwing things in the classroom like throwing pieces of paper or something <laughs> I thought that was funny. Anyway, um, so Leela continues to do that. She's a disruptor in her household. She's a disruptor in her friend group. She's a disruptor 
in the neighborhood in general. I think she does like the neighborhood. Like she likes living there because everyone is kind of in all of her, in all of her. Like everyone kind of looks up to her in a way, even adults, because they don't know what to do with her. I think that she likes that perceived power. And I think she wants to use that as a force for change. Whereas Elena doesn't see a future in the neighborhood. She's like, well, if I stay here, then what? Then I'm going to become like everyone else. You know, also, like, Leela is pretty much, like, an activist, you know? Like, she has very strong opinions when it comes to, like, politics, for example. And she applies that to her everyday life, which I think is one of the traits of an activist, right? Like, you don't just talk about it as an abstract thing. You talk about it as something you see in your everyday life. I mean, in, in some ways, like, that brings them closer together because they both see the issues with the society that they're living in, but their solutions are so different. What's interesting is you would think it's inevitable that it drives them apart, but they do kind of like stick together, you know? At the end of the day, by the end of the book, they are still friends. Like they're still, like the, the story is still remains about their friendship. So I guess maybe you could consider it as a union of world views. Yeah, and also uh, maybe as the union of like two very powerful people. Because even though since it's written in, from Elena's point of view, it doesn't seem like she's an extremely powerful person. I think that this story is ultimately about two very powerful people. People who are perceived as the top of the neighborhood coming together. That makes a lot of sense because Elena has a lot of respect in the neighborhood because she's so brilliant academically. Like she goes to high school. I think she's the only only girl in the neighborhood who goes to high school, right? Yeah, she's the only girl in the neighborhood who goes to high school. Like, everyone knows that she is super intelligent. And honestly, I would say that economically, she exists right in the middle of very poor people like Leela and very rich people like the Solaras because her family is rich enough to be able to afford all the like schools and things the things that she needs to succeed academically which Leela's family is not but at the same time she's not rich but it does um, show you how that little tiny bit of leverage is so important in terms of moving forward in life. Leela can't move forward in life even if she wanted to. Like she economically can't leave the neighborhood. It's not just about her attachment to it. She literally could not even if she wanted to. But Elena, because her father is a porter for like a hotel or something in Naples. Well, he's a porter in Naples. <laughs> and so he has just a little bit more to offer economically. And that's enough to give Elena something that Leela can never have. But yeah, you're right. These are, these are both very powerful people. Like they command a lot of respect in the neighborhood because they're both so different from everyone else. And actually we're going to return to this discussion of power and in particular how it relates to gender and gender roles in a bit. But first, oh, I want to actually wrap this up by asking like, so are Leela and Elena fundamentally friends? Like, would they be friends in any other situation or circumstance? Or is it situational? I think 
I'm going to say that it's situational because I don't think that, for example, if they both lived in Naples and they both went to high school, I don't think they would be friends. I agree. I think it's really the circumstances that make them catch each other's attention and just lock them in together. Like, imagine if Elena did live in Naples, like, in the city, and she went to high school, and there was someone like Elena, like, Lila, someone like Lila. Elena's a very go-with-the-flow person. If she was in a higher economic situation, and she was in high school and was still smart, she would hate Lila. She would hate someone who was a disruptor and an activist, because she would be content with where she was in life, and she wouldn't have that perspective that makes her understand why Lila acts the way she does. I think so, and I think it's even more, like, Elena wouldn't even be at the top of the class. She wouldn't be considered smart. I think it's because of her environment that she realizes that she can be number two. That That's also interesting. I think also it's just one of those things where, like, if you're disadvantaged, do you work harder in school because it's a necessity? Like, if Elena is going to leave the neighborhood, it's through school, and so that pressures her to do the absolute best that she can. Okay, so we've talked about two things that I think make this a really good book. So um, one is the society and that perspective that the author brings, like that lens. Two is the friendship between Elena, Elena and Lila. It's classic. It's iconic. It's the emotional core of the book. But the third thing that is really good about this book is the writing. And I do want to acknowledge for a moment that this writing style is Elena Ferrante's but I think we also need to thank our translator as well for translating it into something pretty, if that makes sense. Because the thing is, so many translations feel wooden, you know? But this translation doesn't. It's evocative and it brings the story to life. And also, it's just written really well. And that is Elena Fronte, but it's also the translator. I know because I've done translation before. Like this... This is also the translator's own abilities shining through. So congratulations to both of them. The thing about this writing style is it's very intricate and it's very, very dense. That's why I say that like rereads and revisitings are so important because you catch things every time that you didn't before. And it's another hallmark that definitely makes me classify this as literary fiction. There's a lot of very subtle stuff that you wouldn't catch unless you were paying attention. And in particular, the social commentary is often very subtle. Like, blink and you'll miss it. Skim anything, you'll definitely miss it. So, I want to bring up this quote in particular that I really enjoyed and which I used in my Barbenheimer discussion because I, I think it's so good. Like, it's not only good in the sense that it captures a really important dynamic in this particular context, but I think it is a really good commentary on patriarchy or like any social structure where one group is valued above another group in general like this is such a good quote so this is this is the quote it seemed that she Leela, she who in general feared nothing was afraid but they were impressions i recalled only later at the moment i didn't notice i felt closer to carmela to ada than to her she seemed as usual to have no need of male attention we instead out in the cold in the midst of that chaos without that attention couldn't give ourselves meaning 
And I want to hone in on that last bit there. Couldn't give ourselves meaning. Because the thing is, if you're a woman living within a patriarchal power structure, then what does give you meaning? Because the thing is, you are not just allowed to exist. You have to exist as something in relation to men. You have to be a wife. You have to be a mother. You have to be a daughter, right? You have to be something or you're nothing. You're not given permission to simply be. And the thing that I brought up in my Barbenheimer discussion was that Barbie and Ken, crucially, both do not play clearly defined roles in Barbie land. Barbie could be a doctor or an astronaut or whatever she wanted to be, but she isn't. And yet Barbie is fully satisfied with who she is, whereas Ken can't give himself meaning like these girls unless Barbie is paying attention to him because of the way that the society is structured. And so I just really love this quote. Like this is one of my favorite quotes that I've picked up in a book this year. Like it's just so good. In a single sentence, it encapsulates pretty much everything you ever need to know about like gender roles. <laughs> but I do think that this brings us very neatly to our next topic, which is going to be social commentary. So let's unpack. Let's unpack what this book has to say about all the, all the themes that it talks about. Violence, femininity, girlhood, gender roles, gendered violence, domestic abuse, domestic violence, all those um, heavy topics. <laughs> I was going to say all those good things, but they're not good things. In fact, um, most of those are very bad things. So let us unpack. So the theme that I'm most interested in in this book is violence. And in particular, what I want to talk about is how women and women's childhoods in particular are often romanticized. They are often presented to us as like sugar and spice and everything nice, right? <laughs> women are, you know, living these soft, feminine, you know, uh, pink <laughs> childhoods. And I think that that is in part perpetuated by books like Little Women and Anne of Green Gables, which are like the classic books about girls' childhoods. And in those books, there is conflict, but there's never really danger. Well, in Little Women, there's a little bit of danger, but it's not really external. It's like internal. Like Joe has a really bad temper or Amy also has a really bad temper, that kind of thing. But the threats are always internal. It's about internal struggles and things that they deal with in terms of like feelings and thoughts and emotions. But the thing that these kinds of books tend to ignore is that from the time that you are very little, the, from the time you're a little girl, from your earliest conception of what the world is and how you should navigate it, there is always a threat of danger. I was five years old the first time that I was taught the basics of self-defense. I was five years old the first time I learned that it was a very real possibility that people might try to hurt me or kidnap me or, you know, in some way violate my bodily autonomy. And I learned it at such a young age because things happen to little girls very early on. And of course, they happen to little boys and just little children <laughs> in general, but there's not as much emphasis 
on little girls vulnerability in literature like if you have a little girl in a book then she's gonna be like cute and sweet and completely oblivious to the world around her but that's just not true as a little girl I was hyper aware that bad things could happen to me at pretty much any moment and I needed to be aware of that and of course as I got older those warnings escalated like you need to look out for dangerous people and dangerous situations and you need to avoid putting yourself in those dangerous situations because it's my responsibility to look out for my autonomy and my well-being right (laughs) because society and the world at large is a dangerous place and you shouldn't endanger yourself unnecessarily blah 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 you you get the picture but those are things that children like little girls are taught very early on and i don't think people stop often enough particularly in books to think about what effect that has on you, this constant threat of violence. But one of the brilliant parts of my brilliant friend is that this book, like very early on, I want to say like within the first 20 pages, this book confronts that issue head on. This book starts talking about it almost right away. And I'm going to give you that first quote that I think is like in the first 20 pages, but it's very early on in the book. We lived in a world in which children and adults were often wounded. Blood flowed from the wounds. They festered, and sometimes people died. One of the daughters of Senora Asunta, the fruit and vegetable seller, had stepped on a nail and died of tetanus. Senora Spaniolo's youngest child had died of crop. A cousin of mine, at the age of 20, had gone one morning to move some rubble, and that night was dead, crushed, the blood pouring out of his ears and mouth. My mother's father had been killed when he fell from a scaffolding at a building site. The father of Senor Peluso was missing an arm. The lathe had caught him unawares. The sister of Giuseppina, Senor Peluso's wife, had died of tuberculosis at 22. The oldest son of of Don Achille, I had never seen him, and yet I seemed to remember him, had gone to war and died twice, drowned in the Pacific Ocean, then eaten by sharks. The entire Melchiore family had died clinging to each other, screaming with fear in a bombardment. Old Signorina Clorinda had died inhaling gas instead of air. Giannino, who was in fourth grade when we were in first, had died one day because he had come across a bomb and touched it. Luigina, with whom he had played in the courtyard, or maybe not, she was only a name, had died of typhus. Our world was like that, full of words that killed. Krupp, tightness, typhus, gas, war, lathe, rubble, work, bombardment, bomb, tuberculosis, infection. With these words in those years, I bring back the many fears that accompany me all my life. You could also die of things that seemed normal. You could die, for example, if you were sweating and then drank cold water from the tap without first bathing your wrists. You'd break out in spots. You'd start coughing and be unable to breathe. You could die if you ate black cherries and didn't spit out the pits. You could die if you chewed American gum and inadvertently swallowed it. You could die if you banged your temple. The temple, in particular, was a fragile place. We were all careful about it. Being hit with a stone could do it, and throwing stones was the norm. 
And what I think is so brilliant about this passage is that after talking about all of these natural disasters and just like things that you can't avoid, it segues into that final sentence. Being hit with a stone could do it and throwing stones was the norm because that brings it back to individual people threatening you harm. And that in turn segues into well, in the book, it segues into a specific incident where Leela and Elena encounter some boys who are throwing stones at them. But more importantly, in your mind, it segues into a conversation about how violence is something that is perpetuated against you by other people. And in particular, domestic violence is something that happens in pretty much every household in this neighborhood all the time. And it doesn't have to be because of any huge reason. It's just like a normal phenomenon. People hit other people in the households and it's often the father hitting the other people in the household. And I would say the most violent household in the entire book is Leela's household. Her father is terrifyingly violent. So I think that that definitely affects how Leela sees the world and how she reacts to it. She reacts to the world in this way because of that being her home environment. If your home environment is your father swearing at you and hating you constantly, then you are also going to react that way to the world. But then as the girls grow older, the specter of gendered violence specifically from people outside of their household becomes much more real. And that's embodied by Marcello and Michelle Solara. So at one point in the book, they get a car and they start driving the car around and that becomes a very ominous theme that you know is going to build up and build up in tension and explode. So that was one of the first points where I started really feeling it's not a thriller but it does kind of feel that way because there just is so much tension. But I think what's important to recognize that this book also does really well. I keep saying this book does things really well, but it does. This is definitely one of those books that I think is going to go down as like a classic, you know? But anyway, one of the things that this book does really well is show that the girls aren't just victims. As we have already discussed, these girls within their neighborhood are powerful people. But the thing that I find so interesting is that they internalize both the violence and the threat of violence and this atmosphere that they're living in of tension. And Leela in particular is a very violent person. Like she is not like calm and sweet and meek and docile. No, she is a very violent, scary person. And that reminds me a lot of the way that Gillian Flynn writes women. So Gillian Flynn is one of my favorite thriller authors. And her book, Sharp Objects in particular, really reminds me of the dynamic between the women in this book and just like the society in this book because there's a lot of discussion in that book about how the world that women are exposed to because the thing is, it's kind of a similar situation because there's a lot of poverty. It's an isolated situation. It's a very small town, right? And so the things that happen in that book are definitely different because it's a thriller and there's a lot of like murder and gore and stuff. But 
I'm saying that the social dynamics and the social commentary is really reminiscent of the things that Jillian Flynn likes to talk about. And so I think that if if you like My Brilliant Friend, I think you should also read Sharp Objects. Everyone reads Gone Girl, like that's her most famous thriller, but I actually found Sharp Objects to be the better book in my opinion, just because it talks so much about these kinds of situations. And so she specializes in her unlikable female characters, but what is interesting is they aren't unlikable for the sake of being unlikable or unpleasant or dangerous. They are that way because of the world that they're living in. Also, the world they're living in plays a big role in how they react to this gendered violence. Because as you say that Leela is violent, but if you notice, she's only violent within the neighborhood because she's all powerful there. Like when they step out of the neighborhood and the same kind of gendered violence happens, she nervously laughs because she doesn't have any power outside of that neighborhood. That's really interesting, yeah. And also, I think it's, if you're in your own neighborhood and it's people you know perpetuating violence against you, then you'll kind of know where the boundaries are. Like, how far they'll go, like, exactly what degree of danger you're in. But if you're outside your neighborhood and it's strangers, then maybe you don't know as much and so you are a lot more nervous about it. I mean, admittedly, there's a difference between somebody laying their hands on you and, like, blowing you a kiss, but... Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point, yeah. And part of the reason that Leela is powerful is because she is very adept at navigating the neighborhood. And part of... Well, I would say, like, the main way that she navigates the world that she lives in is via manipulation because she knows people. She knows people really well. She can read people, especially the people around her, and she knows how to push their buttons, but she also knows how to make them like her. And so she is a very dangerous person, and I think that this quote is a really good example of just how often Elena is like, whoa, like, whoa, you know, she backs up a moment. It's like, this is what Leela is really like, you know, or, or at the very least, this is the potential that Leela carries within her of the kind of person that she could be if she's pushed too far. So this is, this is a quote. Leela was malicious. This in some secret place in myself, I still thought. She had shown me not only that she knew how to wound with words, but that she would kill without hesitation. And yet, those capacities now seem to me of little importance. I said to myself, she will release something more vicious. And I resorted to the word evil, an exaggerated word that came to me from childhood tales. But if it were a childish self that unleashed those thoughts in me, they had a foundation of truth. And in fact, it slowly became clear not only to me, who have been observing her since elementary school, but to everyone, that in essence, not only seductive, but dangerous emanated from Leela. So as you say, like, she is someone who everyone in the neighborhood approaches with caution, because they all know better than to, you know, make her angry or make her upset. But I think one of Leela's most powerful techniques is her way with words and how she seems to imbue everything that she says and talks about with so much importance, right? If she is interested in something, she will do her best to make everyone else around her also interested in that thing. For example, at one point she becomes really obsessed with making well, designing and making shoes because she thinks, well, if my family repairs shoes, then we could also make shoes. 
and that could make us really rich if we made like designer shoes for everyone in the neighborhood and so she gets her brother reno to help her out with making the shoes and she talks about this to leela i mean elena she talks to elena about this constantly and elena is like well this is much more important than going to high school or at one point when elena is on vacation and Leela sends her a letter talking about all the issues that she's having back home, Elena's like, well, this is much more important than me having fun. Like, this feels more real to me. And so she goes home, like, almost immediately. And so Leela uses these kinds of abilities to get her own way. And she doesn't always get what she wants, but she definitely gets her own way more often than not. And so what this really shows us is that girls are victims of violence and of society, but they are also shaped by the realities in which they live. If you live in a violent society, then that affects you. That affects the way that you do develop as a person. And what's interesting is that Leela develops into a very confrontational person, whereas Le Elena, sorry, develops into a much more go with the flow, let's not have any conflict, right? That kind of much more conciliatory person. I think that personally for me, these are the main two personality types that will develop in this kind of very confrontational society. It'll either create people who love conflict and who thrive on it and who go all in, or it will create people who hate conflict and will avoid it at all costs and you can see this in like microcosms as well not just of violent societies but of like violent or tense households right people growing up in the same household will develop into i think these basic personality types as well people who can't live without the conflict and people who would rather live without it <laughs> So that is the social commentary point I wanted to talk about, about violence. So earlier we brought up Little Women and Anne of Green Gables as like more traditional books about girlhood and growing up. And I think it could be fun to do a bit of a compare and contrast. So let's talk in particular about Elena and Lila and their friendship and how that compares to the relationships between women in these more traditional stories. And I'm bringing up Little Women and of Green Gables specifically because those are two stories I'm very familiar with and which I read a lot growing up and which I did find to be very relatable at the time. And I still do. But at the same time, they definitely present sanitized and idealized visions of more how girlhood should be rather than how it actually is. And I would say it's not just because there's no external threats of like violence or poverty because, I mean, those things are true, but the more important, I think, aspect is that, okay, two things. One, if you look at these protagonists, right? So I'm going to call Anne. Anne is the protagonist of Anne of Green Gables. And then you look at Joe, who is the protagonist, I would say, of Little Women. So those two protagonists have a lot of control over their lives. Like if you notice in those two books, they have a lot of dreams and they have a lot of aspirations. And there's not really a point where they have to confront 
this fact that they may not get what they want. But what I do think is interesting is that Anne and Diana, I would say, actually have kind of a similar situation to Elena and Leela going on because Anne is able to go on to higher education, but Diana is denied this opportunity much in the same way that Leela and Elena operate, right? Like Elena gets to go on to higher education, Leela does not. However, the difference, of course, is that in Leela's case, she is very upset about this because she's very smart. She knows her own potential. She really, really wants these things, right? She really, really wants education because she knows what she's giving up. She knows how huge this could be for someone like her. Diana, on the other hand, is like, well, I was never very smart anyway. I was mostly only wanting to go because then I could be with you. And I'm perfectly happy to settle down early and be a wife and mother. And I think that this is very illustrative of how women are supposed to be. Women are supposed to be like, well, I'm fine with how my life turned out, you know, like I don't, I don't have any regrets. Like that's the ideal. You're not supposed to want more than has been given to you by your circumstances and by society. And so I think that that is really an interesting contrast. Like Anne and Diana are a very interesting contrast to Elena and Leela, not just because Anne and Diana have less friction, <laughs> but more so because of how they react to these kind of similar situations, right? Because the thing is, like, imagine if Anne had been the one denied higher education. It wouldn't happen because she's the protagonist, but if she had, Anne would be very upset, but she can't extend that same perspective to Diana because Diana's like, oh, it's fine, it's okay, like, don't worry about me, and Anne isn't, well, I mean, it's partially because of like the time period and all that, but still, like Anne isn't really thinking about how she would react in that same situation, which I find really interesting. The reason I find it interesting is because I would call Anne and Diana's friendship much more real than Elena and Leela's relationship on a foundational level. Like Anne and Diana are friends because they like each other. Like they would be friends in any time period, any situation. But still, when it comes to wanting things and aspirations and goals, Elena and Leela still understand each other better than Anne and Diana do. And that's because Anne and Diana are living in this very repressive society and at the end of the day, they both kind of ignore that. Anne does go to college and have a job and puts off marriage and motherhood until she's ready, but she's still operating within the context of her society. She never pushes back against it. Whereas Elena and Leela, in their own ways, are both very hyper aware of their society and their societal limitations and push back against those things in their own ways. Leela more so, but Elena still, right? Like, by escaping. Exactly, by escaping. She is making a conscious escape. Anne doesn't escape. She stays on the island. She settles down and becomes a wife and mother, and she says that she's okay with that. And I do have to talk about this because I think that another really interesting facet 
of like compare and contrast kind of things is that in Anne of Green Gables and Little Women, the characters have very supportive parental figures in their lives. Whereas Elena and Leela are pretty much on their own. Like their parents are the opposite of supportive. They have to struggle to get everything they want not only against society but also the the households in which they live and I think that that is really such an important thing because often like as a woman if you want what you want then you have to fight for it you know but in Anne of Green Gables and in Little Women they have these supportive families these supportive people and I think that that is, I mean, good for the characters, right? But it's kind of misleading because the thing is, both of these books are autobiographical to an extent. And you can just tell that a lot of that is wishful thinking. It comes through the text, right? Like these idealized, I mean, Anne and Marilla do struggle with their relationship, but at the end of the day, they do resolve into this very supportive parental dynamic. And in particular, you can tell that is definitely wishful thinking. I can tell just by reading Emily of New Moon, also by Lucy and Montgomery. Emily of New Moon is interesting. It's often described as more autobiographical than Anne of Green Gables, and I'm sure it is in a way, but at the end of the day... So, okay, so Emily of New Moon, for people who don't know, is, is really good. You should read it. <laughs> um, it's a trilogy, so shorter than the Anne of Green Gables series. The third book is a little iffy. You can tell she wrote it towards the end of her life, and it's like, uh... Not the conclusion I would have wanted, but the first two books in particular are really, really good. Anyway, but Emily of New Moon is a story about a girl. Her father dies. She's left an orphan, and so she's adopted by her aunts. Uh, aunt, what are their names? Aunt Elizabeth and Aunt Laura. Yeah, Aunt Elizabeth and Aunt Laura. So Aunt Laura is very sweet and kind, but Aunt Elizabeth is much more harsh, and I would say much meaner than Marilla ever is. And that is based on Ella Montgomery's own experiences growing up with her grandparents, who are both very, very harsh to her. But the thing is, over the course of the Emily of New Moon books, actually in the first book, I think, there comes a point where Aunt Elizabeth's like, you think I hate you? Like, I don't hate you. I love you. You know, I'm just really struggling with your mother's death. But the thing is, that's wishful thinking because that's never what was able to happen to Ellen Montgomery in her real life. And it's just so sad that she tried to write about her pain and her trauma. But at the end of the day, she couldn't. Like, she couldn't go there. Oh, I did not realize that. That's really sad, actually. But come to think of it, there's something I have been forgetting about Anne. Yes, Anne has a really, like, happy life within the books, but it's hinted that before she's adopted, she had a really, really unhappy life. Oh, yes, definitely. She was living in an orphanage before she came to Green Gables, and it's definitely hinted at that that was, um... A very difficult time in her life and even before the orphanage she went from person to person who didn't really want her but were trying to use her that's true that's true yeah which is why she kind of develops her personality as like a defense mechanism i feel like there was definitely a lot more potential to explore that in terms of like how it affected her and her character growth and her character development by the second book she's put all that behind her and she's become a very well-rounded adult which 
I feel is kind of unrealistic in that she never revisits that trauma of her early years. But again, limitations of when the series was written, like the time period and the context. However, I do want to put a caveat here that I'm not saying that darker and grittier books are necessarily more realistic than like happier, lighter books because I don't like that kind of thinking. I mean, there are definitely people who grow up in happy families and <laughs> I'm like, there are definitely people who grow up in happy families. Okay, no, but there are definitely people who lead lives as idealized and sanitized as they possibly could be like those people exist and their experiences are perfectly valid but at the same time it's important that those aren't the only books that represent girlhood and women's experiences growing up because a lot of women do actually struggle with really dark and difficult things and so it's a good thing that books like Anne of Green Gables and Little Women exist but it's also really important that books like My Brilliant Friend are being written and appreciated. So, okay, so let's talk about our favorite parts of My Brilliant Friend. So I would say that my favorite parts I've already gone over. I, I loved the look into this society and I loved getting to like explore this world. And I thought it, it was a very immersive book. I had a really hard time reading it because it was so immersive and so tense. But it was so complex and so interesting and overall it was a it was a really good reading experience. It was, you know, like I keep saying, it's one of my favorite books of the year and definitely I should have read it sooner. I agree. Okay, Mouse, what about you? Favorite parts, character arcs, characters? So I think one of my favorite things about this book was the fact that despite the circumstances or even like because of the circumstances like we talked about earlier, Elena is able to have this really like brilliant friend. For me at least, especially the first time I read it, it was really the idea, like the concept was just really attractive to me of having this one person who's insanely talented right there and who like actually considers you their closest friend. For me that was like wow wow i just want to keep reading <laughs> and i think a lot of books that try to go with this kind of similar thing try to do a romantic angle to it and i really like how pure this book is and how they don't try to go with that anything else wow you don't have any comments oh <laughs> sorry no i i definitely agree like i rant a lot about unnecessary romantic subplots and how they ruin books and I'm very glad that that was not the direction that this book took in. Took. This book took. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that I'm glad that this book stuck to what it was trying to do. I think that the, the thing about the romantic subplots thing is that I know that a large motivation behind that is like the commercial motivation, right? Like romance sells. Does it really? I don't know. But it's it's said to sell. And so that's why a lot of authors put that stuff in. Okay, in general, like we call this literary fiction, right? And literary almost always carries the connotation of like non-commercial, like written for artistic purposes rather than commercial purposes. And I think this book embodies the best of what literary fiction can be when people write from the heart and not from expecting to make money off of it. Like, I don't generally like the distinction of, like, commercial and non-commercial fiction because, like, people can put a lot of heart and thought into commercial books as well, 
But at the same time, when you read a book like this, you do have to acknowledge that non-commercial fiction definitely like is able to accomplish things that I don't think commercial fiction in general is really able to do. One other thing I want to say is this book I really loved how authentic it felt. I know like, you know, there are choices an author makes, like, you know, the choice of the narrator, the choice of the characters, the choices, the choices, the choices. But when you're reading it, it feels like there weren't any choices made. Like, this is just the story. Like, it's organic. People talk about that a lot. Like, it reads like a first draft and not in a derogatory way, no. but but in the in the best way. Like, as if the author is like an absolute genius, just like Leela. Right. Like, this was written in one sitting, and it came out the way that it needed to come out. And I think the structure definitely contributes to that. The structure, especially the first couple of chapters or so, feels almost stream of consciousness, though it's clearly very deliberately designed to pull you into the story. And that is what is called smart writing. Okay, so let's talk about most surprising parts, character arcs, characters. So, I need to point out that the friendship was really surprising to me because a lot of the book is Elena angsting over Leela not really being her friend anymore or like how close are they are they actually and just things like that and that wasn't really what I was expecting and I think that in general what's interesting is that especially after a certain point like Leela and Elena don't really like interact that much like they don't really like talk that much even and so it becomes a lot more of like elena living her life and also observing oops and also observing leela's and that to me was so interesting because when you read a book called my brilliant friend and you know it's about the friendship between these two girls that's just not the way you're expecting it to go but at the same time like it's very natural and normal like it couldn't really have been written any other way because of the different directions that they go also which reminds me like I was completely blindsided by the title I had thought okay if you had told me one of the girls was going on with her education and the other wasn't I would have absolutely thought that Leela would be the one to go to high school and all of that because it's called my brilliant friend and Leela is brilliant like more brilliant than Elena objectively but also it couldn't have been written any other way again because that's the point like Leela is smarter but she has less opportunity and Elena works hard to get to where she is but she's helped out by her family's economic situation. That's the point of the book. That's the commentary it's making. It couldn't be written any, written any other way, but it still surprised me and that's always a good thing. Always, you wanna be surprised by what you're reading. You don't wanna read what you're expecting to read. Also, I did not expect this book to end in a marriage. I knew from the cover there was going to be a marriage, but the thing is, these girls are 15 by the end of the book. They're only 15. Like, you wouldn't really expect that to be a marriage of one of the girls. But it is. And in that, just, like, completely blindsided me. I think one of the things that was kind of surprising for me was the character of Reno. And Reno as in not Leela's son, but Leela's older brother. Just because changes so much within the book. A lot of these characters are very static static whereas reno changes from this very reliable older brother to this kind of idiot who just is not actually like paying attention to leela or like paying attention to the world 
I mean, also, Reno becomes very violent. I think that they are supposed to be, like, representative, because they both grow up in the same household. They endure the same violence. But Leela becomes smart about it, right? She knows, she learns to pick her battles. Reno, on the other hand, is kind of blindly fighting back against it. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, this isn't right, therefore I should push back every time. And in the process, he becomes pretty much just like his father. Yeah, he really capitulates to the society he's part of. And I guess it's making a comment about how, like, people will just deteriorate if they don't actually have, like, real strength to them. I don't think it's so much about strength, though. I think it's about knowledge and self-awareness. Like, you can't fight back unless you understand yourself and what's going on and how you are reacting to what is going on, right? Leela is smart, but she's also educated and that makes all the difference. Reno doesn't really understand. He just knows what he's experiencing, but he doesn't think through it. Yeah, that's true. Definitely. Also, another small thing, but I was surprised at how Lita doesn't really know much about the world around her either. Beyond that neighborhood, she really doesn't even know that high school exists. Yeah, and I mean, that's part of, I think, what binds her to the neighborhood, this ignorance of the larger outside world. Maybe maybe it's not like she doesn't want to leave, it's like she's scared, scared to leave, you know, because she doesn't know what's out there and how she would fit into that larger context. And so she's thinking, like, it would be easiest if I could change the neighborhood into a place where it's easier for me to live and so I don't have to confront that fear and, you know, leave and find another place. Okay, so let us talk about saddest parts character arcs characters because this is, in a lot of ways, a very tense book but also a really sad book. So, let's talk about that, and Mouse, I'm going to let you go first, because I realized that I made a bunch of segues at this point, and it's going to lead us straight to the ending if I go first. So, I'm going to let you have the opportunity to go first, okay? I feel like one of the things that I felt sad about was the fact that Elena doesn't really seem to make new friends, even when she goes to, like, middle school or high school, or places where you'd expect her to meet a lot of new people. She really just sticks to... Leela and to some extent like Carmela and the other girls. Yeah. And, and boys that she already knew. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we say that Leela is attached to the neighborhood, but uh, in other ways, like Elena really is too. For example, the guy she picks to be her boyfriend, Antonio, he's very much of the neighborhood. I mean, that shows Elena's central conflict. She knows she needs to get out of there because otherwise, what kind of life is she going to have? But at the same time, she is really emotionally attached to the place that she grew up in. She also kind of has the same fears that Leela does about like leaving and going into the wider world and trying to reestablish her community all over again. But yeah, it is, it is very sad that... Um, Elena can't really motivate herself. But also, though, I think it's important to note that part of it is because she is going to school with people who are of a higher economic status than her. Like, she's going to school with people who live in Naples, and so I think there's that as well. Like, it's 
it's difficult when you're an outsider to make friends with people who kind of belong, right? Okay, so for me, one of the saddest things is that the girls have to grow up so fast. By the end of the book, they're only 15, and yet Leela's getting married, and Elena is also, like, starting to think about things like that. And Leela, in particular, she has to get married because she doesn't want... So, Marcello Solara pursues her for, like, the second half of the book, I would say. Like, he is constantly pressuring her to marry him and she doesn't want to so her only option is to marry someone else and so she ends up marrying Stefano but it's not because she wants to it's because she has no choice because you know as terrible as her father is for like beating her up her parents are even worse about like basically selling her off they're like well Marcello is rich you know so why don't we just get you married off to him and it's like seriously like seriously she's 15 she's a child but you know all the men in this book are so terrible like there are very few well there are no grown-up men that are good and there are only a few like similarly aged boys who are even remotely likable like Leela's father and brother I mean I mean we've mentioned before that they're violent but at one point, Leela's father literally throws her through a window. That is the level of insanity that Leela's father and brother are going to. Like, every family's violent, but you would especially not want to live with them. Like, it's dangerous, straight up. Like, any violence is dangerous, but these people are so violent. And then we have the Solara brothers, of course. We mentioned that they get a car and they start driving around and they start driving around because they're trying to abduct girls off the street like oh my god no wonder Leela doesn't want to marry Marcello and yet people act like she's crazy for not wanting to because he gives her family a television that's the other thing that really struck me about this book like the measures of wealth are like cars and television but this is the 50s so even in the u.s like televisions were still relatively like just becoming like a thing so anyway so yeah so at one point marcello and you know the solera brothers actually try to abduct either lila or elena or they're just like bothering them and Leela literally fends the brothers off with a knife. She's like, I will kill you if you don't leave us alone. And I think that that's one of the, the points where I was like, Leela is determined. Like she is not someone to be trifled with. And I think it is good in these types of stories not to show women as like victims necessarily because yes, they can be victims, but women aren't helpless either, you know? And then, of course, we have Nino's father. So, Nino is Elena's crush. He is someone that they know from childhood, Elena and Lila. Nino and his family lived in the neighborhood, but then stuff happened and Nino and his family moved out. But then later on in the book, Elena goes to the seaside for a vacation that's arranged by her teacher. And there she reconnects with Nino and his family because they also visit at the same house. And at first, Nino's father seems to be the exception. Like he seems to be a genuinely nice person. But the first warning sign is that Nino hates his father. And I will give you a couple of quotes. So the first quote is this. 
I will devote my life, he said, as if he were speaking of a mission, to trying not to resemble him. And then later on, this is Nino speaking about Melina. So the real reason that Nino's family moved out of the neighborhood was that Nino's father had an affair with Melina and Melina was being really terrible to Nino's mother. And so the family was essentially forced to move out and Melina became quote unquote crazy because she basically had like a mental breakdown. So here is Nino talking again. He was her, Melina's, lover. He knew perfectly well that she was a fragile woman, but he took her just the same out of pure vanity. Out of vanity, he would hurt anyone and never feel responsible. Since he is convinced that he makes everyone happy, he thinks that everything is forgiven him. He goes to mass every Sunday. He treats us children with respect. He is always considerate with my mother, but he betrays her continually. He's a hypocrite. He makes me sick. And this is Elena's initial reaction to Nino. What disturbed me profoundly was that Donato, Donato, Donato? Donato Saratore, as far as I had seen with my own eyes, heard with my own ears, was not repellent. He was the father that every girl, every boy should want. And in fact, Maritza adored him. But, okay, and this was actually one of the most surprising parts of the book for me, but I didn't want to bring it up until this point. Nino is completely right about his father because his father assaults Elena. I was like, what? Like that just completely took me off guard. But yeah, terrible person. All of the men in this book, terrible, literally so terrible. And what's so sad is the ending because Leela chooses Stefano. She chooses to marry him because he is a man she thinks that she can trust because he's all, oh yes, you know, we are going to transform the neighborhood. We are going to be different. And she believes him. So for example, during their engagement, Marcello starts spreading rumors about what happened during his engagement to Leela. And then Leela and Stefano are discussing what to do about these rumors. So here is the quote. After talk and more talk, they had decided by mutual consent to rise a step above the Solaras, above the logic of the neighborhood. A step above? I asked, marveling. Yes, to ignore them. Marcello, his brother, the father, the grandfather, all of them. Act as if they didn't exist. So Stefano had continued to go to work without defending the honor of his fiancée. Leela had continued her life as a fiancé without resorting to the knife or anything else. The Solaras had continued to spread obscenities. I was astonished. What was happening? I didn't understand. The Solaras' behavior seemed more comprehensible. It seemed to me consistent with the world we had known since we were children. What, instead, did she and Stefano have in mind? Where did they think they were living? They were behaving in a way that wasn't familiar, even in the poems that I studied in school, in the novels I read. I was puzzled. They weren't reacting to the insults, even to that truly intolerable insult that the Solaras were making. They displayed kindness and politeness toward everyone, as if they were John and Jacqueline Kennedy visiting a neighborhood of indigents. When they went out walking together and he put an arm around her shoulders, it seemed that none of the old rules were valid for them. They laughed, they joked, they embraced, they kissed each other on the lips. I saw them speeding around in the convertible, alone, even in the evening, always dressed like movie stars, and I thought, they go wherever they want, without a chaperone, and not secretly, but with the consent of their parents with the consent of Reno, and do whatever they like without caring what people say. 
Was it Leela who had persuaded Stefano to behave in a way that was making them the most admired and most talked about couple in the neighborhood? Was this her latest invention? Did she want to leave the neighborhood by staying in the neighborhood? Did she want to drag us out of ourselves, tear off the old skin and put on a new one suitable for what she was inventing? So basically, Leela has a lot of hope for Stefano. She's thinking, this is a man who will help me disrupt. This is a man who will help me change the way that everyone is acting. But then at her wedding, Marcello shows up wearing the shoes that she and Reno made together. And Leela is really upset because she's like, this is not a man who's any different. I've been tricked, but this is Italy. They are Catholic and divorce is not a thing. So now she is stuck with him. Although theoretically, I think that Leela could have had the marriage annulled because it literally just happened, but she isn't going to do that because she knows it's not economically something that she can do. Stefano is rich, and if she doesn't marry him, then what's she going to do? <sighs> I don't know. It's just, uh, it was a, it was a really sad ending. <laughs> All right, so speaking of marriage, if you had to pick a single man in this book to marry, who would it be? And you have to pick one. Mouse, what about you? I'd pick Antonio. Antonio's like super nice. You're you're gonna you're gonna pick Elena's boyfriend. She's gonna fight you for him. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't really <laughs> like him. <laughs> okay. Um, I would pick Alfonso, who goes to school with Elena. He seems really nice, and he does actually like respect her. So that's good. I think that Nino would be my second choice. I mean, he's not terrible. He is very obsessed with himself, but he's not terrible as far as the other boys in the book go. And he's also like out of the neighborhood. See, the nice thing about Alfonso is that he comes from a rich family and Nino would definitely take you out of the neighborhood because he doesn't even live there. <laughs> and he also like doesn't care about like everything that goes on in the neighborhood. And I think that's definitely a plus in this world because like, ah. Okay, other question. If you had to pick a family to be born into in this book, which would it be? So you have to pick a family. I'd pick Elena's family. Yeah, they're not terrible. So <laughs> yeah, her mother even once like showed her approval by saying that Elena could use her bracelet. Yeah. Okay. Personally, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick a rich family because being part of a poor family is just too depressing. But honestly, I think that. As long as you're not in Leela's family, you have some chance at a good life. Or like an okay life. Okay. Well, how about Melina's family? Oh, yeah. No. How about not Melina? Okay, if you had to, if you married Antonio, you'd have to deal with Melina. That would not be fun. But yeah, definitely I would pick a rich family because then I, I would have a chance at a life. All right, so I have started the next book in the series, which is The Story of a New Name. And um, I'm really enjoying it so far. So there are four books in this series. And so far, this is reading like a natural continuation of the story rather than like a sequel written to be a sequel. So again, like very organic. And yeah, so far I'm really, well, enjoying is probably the wrong word because everything that's happening in this book is probably even more depressing than the first book. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I'm only like a hundred or so pages into the ebook and there's like 900 pages. So hopefully it gets a little, okay. Hopefully there are some moments that are less 
depressing. Anyway, it's a really good book. I'm really enjoying it. Lots of um, quotes and things that I've like highlighted and want to remember. Definitely even more heavy, I would say, on the social commentary than the first book. And so, yeah. Yeah, I would triple at least the strength of the content warnings for the second book. Oh, no. All right. Okay. All right. And Mouse, you've read all four books. Which one would be your favorite? I would say the first one. I really like the scenes of them growing up together. Also, I like. I don't want to give any spoilers out about the other books because I, I'm expecting you to go read all of them, <laughs> even if you've only read the first one at this point. But I would say that the other ones are heavier. But okay, excluding the first one, which would be your second favorite? I'm just curious because I am. I'm gonna read the rest of the series, but I want to know what I can look forward to. They're all really, really, really good. Okay, but like, what's your second favorite? Mm, I would probably choose the last book. Oh, that's great. Because so many times series are ruined by the ending. So excited to know that doesn't happen. Speaking of excitement, there's also a TV show, of course. And it has three seasons so far. The fourth one is in production. There's a season for each book. So I think we can start watching the first season together without getting spoiled, without me getting spoiled for like the other books. So we should do that. It's in an, it's in Italian, but also in Neapolitan. So like they got the Italian dialect dichotomy going on which I think is really important thematically so that's great and uh, I'm really excited we should watch the tv show I'm really excited about that too all right so that was quite quite a lot of talking let's wrap this up so overall I think we both really enjoyed this book um I'm really glad we got to do this fangirl style episode for it i'm really glad i'm really grateful to the story graph reading around the world challenge for inspiring me to finally take this off my tbr i'm not so grateful for adding three more books to my tbr because uh you know i got a lot of reading to do <laughs> but overall this was a lot of fun mouse thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me all right that's everything for this week this has been the 2am book review club Thanks so much for joining me and I'll be back next week at 2am. Until then, have a great week and happy book travels. A la prossima. What does that mean? Uh, see you next time. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs>